a nightmare, really. I wish I didn't have to have carers. But I've not got a choice. Media always kind of sees us as a, a burden. Social care, I just, I just always put don't care. It's degrading. Completely degrading. So there's whole other sides to care that people don't even, you know, don't even recognise. Changes on the horizon in Scotland and disabled people are calling for national reform to overhaul the broken social care system. This is Care About Us, a podcast made by disabled people about the social care system and how it needs to change. This podcast was made by the Glasgow Disability Alliance, a disabled people's organisation or DPO, controlled by our 5,500 plus disabled members. GDA are the largest groundswell of disabled members in Europe and the leading and celebrated example of grassroots community of identity. I'm your host, Carl's Young, Community Development Coordinator at GDA, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sophie Lawson, Policy and Participation Manager as well. Hello. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to GDA members about what social care means to them, the state of the current system, and what needs to change properly to meet disabled people's needs. Today, we're going to be talking about social care in Scotland, a system in crisis. Sophie, do you think you could talk us about the main problems that you're seeing in social care through your role in GDA? Yeah, absolutely. So a big part of my role in GDA is supporting our social care expert group. So members that have experience of needing or using social care. And many of our members have gone months, in some cases over a year, without having a shower, have been called lazy by their care workers for asking for help, are put to bed while it's still light outside, are met with these extremely long waiting periods for any kind of assessment, some waiting months or again even years for urgent intervention. We also know that eligibility criteria is set too highly and is based around reducing dependency on services rather than actually meeting need. Disabled people we found don't feel believed or listened to by social care providers. The trust in the current system just isn't there. And on top of that, social care charges are still in place. So that's putting a backdoor tax on human rights for disabled people and making vital support unaffordable. From what we see and what our members tell us, the current social care system is not working and not able to meet disabled people's needs. We asked one of our members, Rosie, on how she sees the current social care system. Chronic underfunding, worsened by austerity, staff shortages and bureaucracy has created a system that cannot meet our needs today or tomorrow. A system which has eroded our human rights for far too long, leaving too many people isolated, in crisis and unable to cope. GDA members Paula Fumi and Veronica Hamilton told us about their experiencing of getting into the care system and how this changed in recent decades. Paula's about to turn 60 at the time of this recording and she's a mixed-race black woman of Scottish and Ghanaian heritage and now uses a wheelchair. Veronica is 69 years old and here's what they have to say. I now use a wheelchair, but I've been part of GDA for a long time when I was still on crutches. Um, And I used to come to things um, on my mobility scooter way, way back in the day when Drivers for Change kind of started. So I've kind of been coming up along on and off since then. But then when lockdown started, I started to come along a lot more things because it helped me with 
issues of isolation. So I felt as if I had things to do and things to go to. Um, I have rheumatoid arthritis, um, spinal stenosis, and Perthes disease. I had cellulitis, woke up one morning, couldn't move my legs, and now I use a wheelchair. I've been getting social care since 2016. You have no continuity of carers who come into your home. You have no control over the times that they come. Uh, I get put to my bed at 8 o'clock at night, and that's me in my bed till 9.30 the next morning, which is hugely frustrating. And you're made to feel that you're kind of, actually, you feel like you're an inconvenience for them. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, they've got to come and, you know, if you want certain things done certain ways and quite often they treat you as if you're an idiot. Like, you know, they know better or the way that they do things is better. But you say, I want them, this is my home. I want things done this way. I want control over whoever comes into my home. But you just don't get any of that. The management, like, for example, if you if you complain about the fact that your carers have been changed with no notice. They just say, oh, they're needed elsewhere. You don't get any explanation. You're just treated with, you're not got respected. I don't think your dignity is maintained. Like they'll send male carers when you say you don't want male carers, that sort of thing. I just, it's a, it's a nightmare, really. I wish I didn't have to have carers. I've not got a choice. I applied for self-directed support in 2017 and I've had no response really so I've been waiting all that time and it's just it's just like they just leave you on a scrap heap and then the hope that you'll just go away and shut up that's how I feel they just want you to crawl off so that you're not a bother to them it's degrading completely degrading because everybody talks about uh, Western Battenshire being hopeless. My God, if you're hopeless, God help you up in Glasgow because it must be hell. I feel sorry for them now starting off needing social work and help because they'll no get they'll no get a backing from them at all because they they cope through COVID because they took away their their help and they took away quite a few bits and then when they went back to get their stuff in place again they were told oh, you managed through covid uh, the funding's not there you'll manage without us and that shocked me that because they struggled through how do they know they managed it's because they struggled through it that was a letdown for them because if, if you know saying i'll get through it, i'll get through it and then they're only trying to help themselves but they didn't know at the end that they were looking at them and monitoring them i think it's still the excuse to this day we know that in glasgow alone at least 1,884 social care packages were capped at the beginning of lockdown. Some not fully reinstated and some not at all. Like Rosie says, packages were cut at the outset of lockdown, but you have to remember this was cut from a pre-existing state of underfunding and crisis. So even before COVID and the height of austerity, Local authorities were cutting costs, resulting in processes like equalisation. This was where social care packages were cut and disabled people were told, this is equalising. We're going to give it to your neighbour down the road while we leave you without the proper care you need. The inhumane conditions that the UN themselves called a human catastrophe 
have been worsened due to COVID and the cuts to public services that have followed. In addition to the cuts that Sophie and Rosie have just talked about, GD members have raised repeated concerns about the inconsistency of care from postcode to postcode. The postcode lottery of care, and you don't really know what you're going to get, and also the fact that standards aren't consistent throughout the 32 councils that we have. Postcode lottery, then my experiences between two different council areas are drastic, and, and I mean that in the extreme sense of it. I think a consistent care service is important so that it's not a postcode lottery. It's important to remember that inconsistency can also be put down to a lack of resources, funding and staffing. We spoke to GDA members about the importance of care staff that are valued, treated well and respect our rights to independent living. Um, care staff aren't valued enough. Um, they, they do a power of work and they don't really seem to get the recognition that they deserve a lot of the time and they're just expected doing it, you know, they'll only give you a certain amount of hours, so you all, so you don't always get the richness of, of care. So genuinely, you know, they'll do the basics, but I've always tried to push them to do, to do a wee bit more. Um, you know, I've, I've been in holiday with care a few times, for example, um, and that, you know, is a really rich experience um, allows you to you know to, to have that bit of independence and have experiences and not a lot of people get the opportunity to be able to do that I think it needs to be more than than washing and dressing and I also think during the pandemic they were vital for, for my mental health um, and the type of relationship you build up with your carer that sort of working relation can also be really quite personal and I think that may be something that we we could draw out a bit, a bit more about that type of experience with an individual and with a carer. I, I definitely think that's something that we could we could do more of. And I also think that would value the carer a lot better as well. Because they're coming into your home, you need to be ready for that. So there's a whole other sides to care that people don't even you know don't even recognise. I think. To be fair, the carers feel the same way as well because they're sent to, you know, they may be, I've been working with people, the same people for a long time, you know, maybe up to a year or something. Then they just get taken away and put somewhere else. And, you know, it's like one day they're there, the next day they're not. You can't even say thank you, cheerio, nothing. It's horrendous. It just makes me angry. You grieve the fact that they've gone, especially for the people that are, you see, a lot of them, well, some of the ones that I've got, for example, they do they, they do the extra mile, do you know what I mean? Things that maybe aren't on the task, list of tasks, they'll maybe do something, like, for example, feeding my cat is not on the tasks, but they'll feed my cat. But one morning when I mentioned it to carers that had come in that weren't my usual carers, they said, we don't feed cats. Yeah, now, luckily, I could get out of my bed, you know, but before I was in my bed all the time, if I had had them, my cat would have starved. Do you know what I mean? It's things like that, you know. It's like a bereavement. They just get taken away suddenly the next day. You don't have them. I think a consistency of care should be important and that you get the same carers. 
some carers say, oh, they do that because they don't want you to get too close to your carer. Surely that's the point of it. You know, they're performing intimate tasks. And, you know, when new people come and you're like, God, I've got to get naked for these people. Another lot of new people that you've, you're going to shower you and all that or help you in the shower so you've got no clothes on. So here's new people that you've got to, and even the ones that I know, I don't like getting my kit off for them, but you have to. And then new people come along and it's just, it's degrading, completely degrading. Are they giving them too much work? Or, or what? Or, or they cut the staff down to nothing? While it's clear that there is empathy and solidarity with care staff amongst disabled people, there is an inconsistency and this is detrimental to disabled people's lives. With the continuing straits on the workforce, there is this push to place care pressures on family members. On top of this, disabled people felt like they were not being treated as a holistic person with other health or mental health conditions, sexual or gender identities or relationships not being taken into account when they receive care. From my understanding, intersectionality is... So when people think about us, they put us into boxes. So for me, I'd be put into a box as a white man that is Scottish. Um, when in reality, there's much, physically, there's much more to me. I'm a white man. I'm Scottish. I live independently. I have my own home. I actually am transgender. I'm also queer. I have, I have quite a strong faith. I'm quite a strong Christian. So all these little things make up who I am when a lot of the time we're sectioned into these boxes and services, but only look at that one section. So to be intersectional, you're looking at all the different aspects to someone's identity, community, needs, etc. It's vital that there's that intersectional side to social care, not just uh, like you happen to have a physical impairment. There is so much more to a person and looking at it holistically is the only way it works. If a service isn't looking at things intersectionality, it's not going to work. You can't just have an organisation for physically disabled people, have an organisation for people with mental health issues, or have an LGBTQ group that's not physically accessible. Things like this, when a service does not work when it's not intersectional, I had to stop accessing an LGBT youth group because I physically couldn't get my chair in the lift. That meant that that service then failed when realistically it should be open to everyone. You do need that side of it to make anything work. Other problem kind of stems from when, for example, when you've got a physical disability and mental health issues, they they always look at one or the other. So my previous experience had been I kept being pushed between the mental health team and social work because nobody wanted to pay for it. Nobody wanted to be the one taking responsibility for the support I needed. Realistically, it was social care I needed. It wasn't mental health support I needed. But because I was pushed back and forth between the two, in the beginning, it then led to other issues. Um, and I've said it before, it led to the point they tried to diagnose me with Munchausen's because of the pushback from social work. They were then thinking, actually, is this real or not? And not just looking at my medical records. Um, so that was kind of, that's one of the biggest issues I've seen with it. But the biggest thing that really gave me that good experience was he listened to me and respected what I was saying so when I'd had a care assessment previously um, they had absolutely no respect for the fact I was transgender they couldn't even get my gender and my pronouns correct um, so for example they put I was male but then we're using female pronouns and then asked them to change it so they put I was female and using male pronouns so the fact that he just took that time to actually listen and be respectful 
was really important, not just around the fact of intersectional, but in a whole, in general, even when he was asking about things like the personal care that I need and all these types of things, there was just that respect and understanding. And there was no rush. Like the assessment should normally take like one meeting, you said, but we did it over three so that we had time to really look at the big picture of how I needed support, what was going on in my life and how those around me were involved. So like my flatmates, my main carer, and I'm really clued up in social work, but I didn't know that when you get assessed for SDS, the person who's your main carer can get a carer's budget. I didn't know that. And thankfully, because of the support I got in that, and somebody just being open and honest about what was available, we were able to find that out. And my flatmate gets a carer's budget, which really helps him as well. They just looked at it as, I'm a physically disabled person that needs personal care and hoisted. There was no greater picture of... I might need this equipment and that would actually mean that I need less social care or engaging my community was so important to the mental health side. They wouldn't even look at the fact that I have diagnosed mental health issues and I'm physically disabled. It's such a, it did feel like it was very narrow and it was like, well, we only do this thing. So we're not going to look at that thing, even though they tie in so importantly. It was to the point where I was seeing an OT from social work from my physical health and then an OT from the mental health team from my mental health. It was, why is that not joined up? Even without problems in the workforce, social care cuts, human rights breaches, there remains the problem that the social care system is impossible to navigate. Across the board, GDA members speak of giving up trying to get the support they need because the system is too hard and too dysfunctional to do what it's meant to. After an hour of going to this one, going to that number, going to that number, and you've heard the whole pop, a pop songs by the time you're finished, and then you get to it and it's a machine. Please leave your name and we'll get back to you. You never hear back, but you've wasted, you know, all your time hoping somebody will listen. But not everybody can do that, so it's... Uh... It becomes quite challenging for them, or someone who is quite, you know, scared to approach, you know, to, to approach a care manager, for example, and, and can and can, you know, and then that affects their their mental health because they're not able to fix it or change it or 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 speak up. And I I, I do think it'd be quite good if if there was sort of, sort of training courses almost to be able to talk about the complexities of of care. Yeah. The system is there to complain. It's just the individual doesn't always know that or get to know that or even from a care manager's point of view, get the care manager to tell you how to complain, even even within the organisation um, or out with if you were going to the care inspector. So there's, there's sort of dynamics there about trying to teach people or even just a conversation about, you know, if you're not happy, this is how you complain, or this is, you know. So there's a there's a whole element there, and I think, I think it would it would help the individual understand that there's there's a, other avenues and they're not stuck. There needs to be more advocacy, but the complaints procedure is is already there. It's just that not a lot of people know about that as such, in terms of how to complain. Not just through a telephone that takes you an hour. Um, we need to people at the end of a phone that can actually speak um, and help your dealings there and then rather than waiting a week to get a phone call back and they need to see their manager and their manager needs to see the boss and end up you get fed up and you're frustrated with it and I think 
the big thing I keep going on about is communication. We are in the midst of a social care crisis and the status quo is not good enough. It is far from it. For society as a whole, I think, you know, we should expect a certain standard and we should live up to that. Nothing, Nothing about, about us without us. us. Thanks to Dr Richard Brunner, Fiona McAloon, Tressa Burke, Marianne Scobie and the wider GTA staff team for their knowledge, solidarity and support. This podcast was co-produced with and edited by Helena Rafai. Special thanks to GDA's social care expert group, in particular the members interviewed in this episode and the wider membership at GDA. GDA members drive and inform everything we do, from policy to participation, and steer our collective voice as a community of identity. At the time of recording, 22 million has just been cut from Glasgow's social care budget, leaving disabled people without essential support. Now more than ever, disabled people need the solidarity and support from our community. If you can, please share and support this podcast and GDA's wider work.